And welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends talk about movies. I'm here joined uh, by Sam, Dave, and Connor. We're in the middle, in the throes of our musical month. Uh, but before we talk about uh, this week's movie, I uh, just want to check in with everyone. How's everyone doing? We seen anything good? What are we watching these days? I saw a 2021 movie. Can't believe it. I watched uh, The Power of the Dog, Netflix movie with Benedict Cumberbatch, Jesse Plemons, Kristen Dunst, Kristen Dunst, so several famous people in it. But I really liked it. It took like 45 minutes for the wheels to start to like, I feel like really rev in. And the, but then once, once you're like 45 minutes in, then I think all that groundwork that was laid and tone setting makes a lot of sense. And the film, I think, pays off in a really spectacular way. So I don't know if I can recommend it for everybody, but I I definitely uh, enjoyed it. And we'll probably talk about it more coming up in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, um, you watched it. Yeah, it'll be really, it's fun talking about that movie. I feel like slowly friends have started, because I, I just saw it like a week and a half ago and I feel like slowly friends are starting to see it and talk about it. Uh, anyone else? What what have been on people's watch list? I watched this movie called Night House starring Rebecca Hall. And it's basically Rebecca Hall and no one else. Um, she gives an incredible performance. Um, it's almost like the the yellow wallpaper meets true crime, who knows who done it. And uh, I don't know if I liked it or not. I wanted to really, really, really like it, but I think that the wheels came off a little bit towards the end. At least I personally felt like that. Um, but it, the end kind of reminded me a lot of hereditary and I know folks loved that. So, um, perhaps it was just like not an ending for me, but the, the movie did such an incredible job of making you fucking scared. There was one moment where I like literally had my shirt (laughs) up to my ears because I was so scared. Um, and things don't tend to do that. So for, for that, I really enjoyed it. I love Rebecca Hall so much. Right. She, I think performances she gives are always so unique and different and she's awesome. And she had her directorial debut, uh, a movie called Passing with, um, I think, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega, I think. And it's it was getting re- reviews. It had like a really long rollout. I think she made it in like 2019 or 2020 and it's like just now getting it's making its rounds. Um, so Rebecca Hall, we love you. She's, you're awesome. Yeah. I've been uh, experiencing a little bit of 2021 burnout in uh, going through a lot of movies in the past two months. So I've been going back to some creature comforts. I uh, rewatched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original one the other day, which uh, of course still holds up entirely. I love that movie. One of my uh, top, top 10. And uh, interestingly enough, there is another Texas Chainsaw, another movie titled the texas chainsaw massacre coming out on netflix soon which will be the third time a movie has uh told this story or had that title uh one of which i thought was good so far so we'll see what that trailer was something else (laughs) oh i haven't seen the trailer yet i'll look that up soon so uh connor you mentioned you just saw power of the dog which has kristen dunst in it and 
I feel like I maybe talked to uh, previous episodes when I've seen it that I wish Kirsten Dunst had had a little bit more to do in Power of the Dog. And so watching that movie made me go to a show that she produced and starred in that only got one season and was immediately canceled called On Becoming a God in Central Florida. And so far, I am very intrigued by this show. It's set in like the early 90s uh, and is about uh, pyramid schemes and how she and her husband get caught up in a pyramid scheme. uh, And it's real kind of uneven, like in a really intriguing way. And Kirsten Dunst gives a bomb performance, bomb in a good way performance. So that's my rec for the week. I haven't really watched anything else. Well, thanks for uh, all those recs. We are going to continue on our way through musical month. We've been talking about all things song and dance. And this week we're going all the way back to 1952 with a movie musical classic, Singing in the Rain. And this movie, I kind of makes me think about my parents and sitting in the basement watching Turner classic movies and like this would come on or like American in Paris would come on and uh, what's its face would come on before and introduce it and tell you all the little fun tidbits. I wish I could remember his name, Um, but he was always the TCM voice and guy. And yeah, so singing in the rain classic fifties classic directed by Stanley Donnan, Direct, Gene Kelly gets a direction credit. He did uh, all the choreography for the for the show. It was written by uh, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who also wrote uh, really famous musicals like On the Town. They were a really big uh, powerhouse writing duo in Hollywood at the time. The music is based on music that Nacio Herb Brown and Arthur Freed had written. And we'll get a little more into this later, but this movie was uh, not made out of an already created Broadway musical. This was made for, for, for film, and it was actually just based on a bunch of previously written songs by Nacio Brown and Arthur Freed. Uh, and they're like, well, let's just use these uh, songs. And they brought in Comden and Green to write a story that could string all these uh, previously written numbers together. For those who aren't familiar with the synopsis, I'll give you a quick little gist of the story. It's set in the 1920s on the MGM Hollywood Studios during the transition between silent film era and the advent of the talking pictures, also known as the talkies. Uh, The film follows the fictional production of The Dueling Cavalier, MGM's attempt at a first big talkie hit. So it was like all the rival studios, MGM versus Warner Brothers um, back in the day. So involved in the production are uh, stuntman turned silent film star character Don Lockwood, who is played by Gene Kelly, uh, his studio co-star, Jean Lam- or, excuse me, Lena Lamont, played by Jean Hagen. Don's best friend and performing partner, Cosmo Brown, played by Donald O'Connor. And newcomer, Kathy Selden, played by the great Debbie Reynolds. And so in the movie, after the speaking-only version of The Dueling Cav- Cavalier comes out, to uh, terrible reviews, it's a complete disaster. The studio decides to turn the production into a musical 
bringing in Cosmo to write the music and uh, Gene Kelly to do, or excuse me, his character Don to star and bringing in Kathy to overdub Lisa, uh, Lena's singing and speaking parts. And so that's kind of the story. It's just sort of a movie within a movie, how the movie was made kind of, kind of plot. Wow. What's everyone's familiarity with this, with this movie? Have people seen it before? Was it part of family heavy watching rotations or is this a new, new watch for everyone? It was a new watch for me, surprisingly. Also a new watch for me as well. I had seen it as a kid and it had been a really, really long time since I've revisited it. So it's the first time that I've seen it with, um, you know, all, all my faculties. <laughs> yeah. And it's definitely, um, I think rewatching this movie and we'll definitely get into it. There's a lot as, uh, an adult viewer and also in, I'm going to pause really quickly. I'm so sorry. My cat is doing zooms down the hallway. And so if you hear frantic scampering that is the sound watching this movie as an adult uh definitely it reminded me of the things that I really love about this production and also doing research for the podcast and talking about it reminds me of uh the fact that this movie is definitely reflective of a lot of problems uh of movie making not only in the 20s but also the 50s and so I'd love to uh, kind of dive into the complexities and, and problems of uh, the story and how it was made and things like that. So, but it is interesting that this is new for, for two and then Dave hadn't seen it in a while. Um, I picked this movie because I, I feel like we've talked a lot about uh, movie musicals and their music. And I was like, ooh, I'd love to talk about a movie that features dancing really prominently. And, you know, Gene Kelly choreographed all uh, this production. He had just come off of doing American in Paris, which was a huge hit and featured um, a lot of his more sort of balletic choreography. But I was just, yeah, oh, interested in talking about a movie that really features dancing. The, the music is like whatever, you know, the songs are are only memorable, at least to me, because they're in Singing in the Rain. They're, they're not amazing musical achievements, at least in my opinion. But um, yeah, I was just interested in, in the kind of athletic, frenetic dance numbers by Kelly O'Connor and Reynolds. Um, and you really see that showcased in uh, numbers like Good Morning. So before, yeah, I go into kind of some, some details of things that I kind of wanted to talk about, I guess, yeah, what stands out to you guys about, or what were your first impressions about watching Singing in the Rain? I loved it so much. Um, I, I have to be honest, I'm not like that much into musicals. And it surprises me every time I say it. And I, I believe it less and less every time I say it. Um, Cause it's always seems to be an exception, but um, I really enjoyed this. I laughed at parts that you're supposed to laugh at, got emotional at parts that you're supposed to get emotional at. And just, um, yeah, I think the end gets, goes off the rails like a little bit, but otherwise I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I you mentioned the laughter and the, re because rewatching this reminded me of, how silly and stupid some of these scenes are and some laugh out loud moments, things that I didn't think were funny. And I don't know if we're 
intended to be funny, like when I watched it previously, but there are some definitely highlight mo- funny moments that I would love to get into. This this movie is so important in the American film canon. Like so many scenes are iconic. And as someone who's never watched it before, it's like, oh, that's where that's from. Like, so I was aware of, you know, several different elements and ones that were, oh, I didn't know that this moment was from Singing in the Rain that was parodied, you know, elsewhere. Uh, I've had a really hard time engaging with this film. Without a doubt, man, the athleticism on display is just eye-popping. It's just, I think, the word that came to mind to describe it. Um, But the choreography is amazing. And the fact that so much of it is done in, like, one shot. Um, And there's some interesting, like, stylistic elements at play. But so much of this movie just felt like a drag. And I assume there's people who, like, are absolutely going to hate me for, like, not having just a hard time getting into this movie. But it kind of won me back at the end when we get toward the end, when we actually get into the plot of the like dueling cavalier. Like I thought that was actually a fun like movie within the movie of like, how do we turn the swap into like turning the swap into a musical with also this interesting intersection of like technology. I mean, what an interesting time in film history of when the jazz, Al Jolson, the jazz singer comes out and, you know, um, American society is revolutionized um, by one movie. It's like kind of crazy to think about. Um, just how fast technology changed just with, you know, how much one film changed everything about media in America, especially, you know, cinema. And so I felt like I was actually engaging more in the back half, but with a lot of the, like, we're stopping and singing now, like the older format of this kind of movie musical, while iconic and important, just had a hard time engaging a first time viewer uh, and me as a first time viewer. And I wonder if a lot of that has to do, I I agree, Connor. Yeah, it, it drags in parts. It feels uh, kind of uneven in its pacing. And I, I would venture guess it has a lot to do with the fact that there is no essential store. Like there was no, it, the idea began with, we have this back catalog of songs. Uh, and I think they, a lot of them, there was some kind of, machinations behind the scene with produce like the producer wanting to showcase like the studio's songs from the era and so it was essentially strung this narrative strung together which probably has a lot to do with the fact that or it probably contributes to kind of the lack of like forward thrust uh narrative momentum and i think that's okay like not every movie has to be you know, an intense plot or heavy themes. And so I think it's uh, just what this movie was offering. I think just personally for me, didn't quite click a lot of the time. Well, yeah, I'd say that um, it does feel like a patchwork. It does feel like a patchwork of different songs that were, yeah, like it, as we've, as we've covered, it's, it's established that there were songs before this movie. There were two, I think that were written for the film that were included. Uh, But on the whole, it was sort of like a medley of, almost like a discography of um of these two different artists uh these two composers and songwriters and taking that and springboarding that into a narrative that showcases all of that uh, i think because of that the story screenplay and especially a lot of the things it has especially its treatments of certain characters i think is very clumsy and uh underdeveloped but all of that going to say that i I don't think there was a moment where I was bored. This movie flew by for me. I think because it is such a technical marvel, just because it, technically this movie is miraculous, like down to set design, costuming, which, you know, it was one of the people that worked on um, 
gone with the wind and they still regard this that costume designer as this being their grandest achievement this the the sets are miraculous there's that whole obviously the titular singing in the rain sequence which is two blocks of uh the mgm property that were treated with uh with like you know creating a faux night effect like day for night effect and this miraculous kind of rain effect uh, yeah on every technical level it's incredible and uh the athleticism of the 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 dancing performances and all that went into it in terms of its production history are insane uh all of the performances are knockouts so i i really love this movie but i think it is i, I love this movie as a, a relatively flawed movie on several fronts so the movie is sort of operating as a satire, as like early 1950s, 1952 movie, and it's operating kind of as a satire of 1920s movie making. It's not only exploring this big transition between the silent film in era into this new development of synchronizing sound and visual film, which, yeah, as uh, as was mentioned before, was a huge technical feat. But it's also sort of a s- satirizing the types of things and styles that were in vogue in the 1920s. How do you think this film operates as sort of a 50s assessment and satire of the 20s? Like, how successful do you think that, like, satire is? I think it's so funny watching, like thinking about this movie as a timepiece of like people in the fifties kind of poking fun at folks a generation before, or I guess at this point, probably like a generation and a half, two generations before. And so I just think at that, it's really interesting of like, Oh, in the, you know, my grandparents or parent, you know, parents were doing kind of these things. I just think there's like interesting stuff going on there. I think like Dave brought up the costuming. I think like, dressing this movie like the 20s I thought was incredibly successful this one woman who has this like spider web dress like in the beginning of the film is particularly stunning yeah she um, looks like um Maleficent just kind of walking into yeah. the, this premiere <laughs> yeah just wonderful I think of era placements the, the vehicles it definitely is like the rosiest view of like 1920s Hollywood with you know baggage associated with that but dressed like it um in a really interesting like kind of timepiece sort of way I really love one of the early scenes in the movie when you have the, I guess, gossip columnist, right? Like the radio version of the gossip columnist announcing all of the entrances of the big Hollywood stars. And this is kind of how you meet the characters of Don Lockwood and Gina Lamont or Lena, uh, Lena Lamont where she's announcing who's coming up the carpet, where the red carpet and telling, having them tell their backstory. I'll let the siren go by, sorry. Uh, And this is also when you get a sense of how these stars, how their sort of story is developed and built in Hollywood. The announcer has Don talk about how he became the silent film star that he is. And it's a great overlay of Gene Kelly as Don Lockwood talking about his training at, you know, at a young age in the finest academies in the world, while what you're watching on the film is actually he's like comes from like a 
poor face. He's like a kid, like a kid on the street walking around with his friend, getting into trouble. And then as Don Lockwood is, is sort of spinning this tale of training at Juilliard and having all of these amazing opportunities on the st stage, you really see he had like a hard scrabble, uh, hard scrabble life. And so uh, it kind of lends into this theme of he would uh, illusion and sort of uh, storytelling and how things are not quite as they may appear on film. And so that was actually something that I wanted to ask you guys about, about how the movie uh, engages in sort of Hollywood trickery, storytelling, and in many cases, also appropriation. Well, it's sort of all about the trickery of Hollywood right there, as established in the beginning, this sort of cult of personality surrounding someone's upbringing and their, uh, it almost presents it as, as far as um, Kelly's character, Don, to sort of, you know, I did, I didn't rise to the stanchion. I just, I, I, I was always destined for this as opposed to really getting into the fine details of the hard work of like going out and uh, hoofing as they're called uh, these sort of like very performative, like herky jerky sort of like 1920s dancers and establishing a career out of that. And this film plays a lot with what is true and what is not the whole time. I mean, uh, especially as far as the plot develops, as I'm sure we'll get into this sort of notion of, of dubbing other performers and, and whether or not someone is owed credit for that and, and, and all sorts of layers. So it's, yeah, it's a very layered analysis of the grand facade of that era of Hollywood. And you also, in the character of Don, you also see that he begins as a stuntman. And there's a great scene where he's just the stuntman in this uh, cowboy scene who, when the main star can't do the flip trick over the bar, Don is brought in to essentially now star in the movie because he can actually do the stunts that are required to be the fighting cowboy in, uh, in this bar scene. Uh, and then that's how he meets... Lena Lamont, who is this uh, big time silent film star. Uh, and she's, yeah, she's really the, the, the successful. <laughs> and right. And ultimately <laughs> she becomes the antagonist of the movie later on, as the studios are trying to transition into talking pictures, everyone is concerned uh, about Lena's voice, which is not deemed uh, sonorous enough to be able to pull off a talkie. Like people just make fun of her high-pitched uh, accent. And so then Kathy, is, uh, who is played by Debbie Reynolds, is ultimately brought in to, to dub over a lot of Lena's lines. And we meet the character of Kathy Selden, once uh, Don is trying to flee a party, he he rushes, uh, jumps into Kathy's car while she's <laughs> while she's driving and then starts making the moves on her. And she's like, hell no. <laughs> but you get in their dialogue, essentially this this tension between Lockwood being like, I'm a silent film star and Kathy being like, oh, the pictures, once you've seen one, you've seen them all. I want to be on the stage. I want to be doing, you know, Shakespeare in theater. So you see that tension too about, you know, how are the films perceived versus stage performance. But then later, also all things are not what they, you know, appear to be. Kathy, it turns out, is also a struggling, she's not like a made it stage performer. She's actually struggling uh, kind of chorus girl. 
And she jumps out of a cake at a party that Don is uh, that Don is attending, and he's like, "Ah, oh, you know, got you." What what do we make of kind of the chemistry or lack thereof between Don and Kathy, which it's ultimately set up as there. Like that's the sort of love story there. What do we make of them as a pair? I just did not buy it the whole time. And um, I loved, I, I love how kind of rambunctious they made Kathy and how she's very much not about it for a, a good chunk of time. And, and I was a little disappointed how quickly she did say like, yes, I haven't stopped thinking about you either. Well, you know, like whether or not it's true. And like, to be fair, you know, Gene Kelly for being Gene Kelly, like I get it, I get it. Um, I just wish they would have had her hold out just a little bit more, but what made it for me almost impossible to buy them as serious love interests is knowing about the tension that occurred behind mm-hmm. the curtain and how like ruthless Gene Kelly was to, to Debbie to the fact that like she was like an actual agony, um, both like emotionally and physically. And the fact that like Fred Astaire had to step in and teach her because she's like over and over again, I'm I'm mm. not um a dancer. Like I'm not this. So don't expect w- w- like what you're expecting from me. This is I'm learning this and this is all new to me. Um so it sounds like he was an absolute prick. And uh, I, because I knew that beforehand and going into it, I just, none of it felt real. Not saying that they didn't have chemistry because I think that they did. It's just like, I, I knew the truth. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild what she, what, um, what Debbie Reynolds went through to, to make this film. I mean, she was at the time a gymnast. She happened to win a beauty pageant and therefore got a lot of casting jobs and then was approached for this movie, I believe at the age of, is this is summer is 17 or 19. She was 19. She was turning 19 during the production. Right. So I don't know what age she was when she was approached, but mm-hmm. so young. I mean, so young. And Gene Kelly was like 39. <laughs> and she had really no, yeah, no professional experience in dancing or for that matter, really acting that much. And yeah, there's, there's, I mean, the fabled stories of like, you know, the, the good morning, good morning, uh, shoot, which I guess was like a, like an 18 hour day or something like that. Uh, by the end of which she had all sorts of blisters and was like it burst blood vessels in her feet and was really in bad shape. And yeah, I guess, uh, Sam, as you alluded to, there's a story of her like Fred Astaire visiting the set and discovering her crying beneath the piano and trying to reassure her. Uh, yeah, it sounds as though Gene Kelly was a bit of a, a bit of a tyrant. Uh, as far as uh, his role behind the camera. Uh, this is kind of compounded by uh, Donald O'Connor, who plays Cosmo Brown, his uh, sort of like a best friend and uh, and co-writer and co-choreographer uh, who basically became, when when Kelly kind of established that Reynolds wouldn't be able to be kind of his, for lack of a better term, like his whipping boy on set, uh, he focuses his attention on Connor, criticizing his almost his every move. And uh, then, of course, there's O'Connor's struggle with um, make him laugh sequence, which I, I'm sure, Christine, you know a bit about. Yeah, I mean, a lot there. Like, well, I definitely want to go into some individual numbers. Definitely want to talk about Good Morning. Definitely want to talk about make him laugh. But also along those lines of like, this movie is all about the behind the scenes of making a movie and what's, as Dave, you said, what's real and what's not. And then there are so many layers to the actual production of Singing in the Rain that a lot of the behind the scenes, though, ultimately 
I, I saw it sort of trickle in to what's left in the narrative. I mean, with the real story of uh, Gene Kelly being like on set manipulative and arguably like abusive to De Debbie Reynolds, like as far as like pushing her to her, to her limits, you have that case of like a production uh, where like men wield a lot of the power and are putting women in particular situations that are not comfortable for that or like pushing them in ways that are, you know, not great. We can, Dave, we're going to say something. Yeah. That sort of trickles into a lot of um, a lot of my uh, my screenwriting problems with this movie is uh, the way that it treats these two leads, uh, these well, the two the two women leads in the film. It you see that it ultimately trickles into the climactic scene of Lena Lamont being uh, sort of basically publicly humiliated when they pull back the curtain and it's actually Kathy singing and talking and the whole audience is laughing at her and it's off to the side. You see the producers, you see Gene Kelly and you, or you see Don Lockwood and you see O'Connor all sort of giddily conspiring against her. And the movie makes her to be sort of the problem and the antagonist, but I, you know, it's like, you feel really bad for her and she's publicly humiliated in the worst way possible. And you see those sort of mechanisms at play that feel very unfortunately realistic to the period and to those types of productions. There's that on top of them unknowingly roping Kathy into this ex this exposure. Where like she's not exactly, she's not complicit right. she's in, in revealing well. that uh, that Linda is a fraud and that she's the voice all along, as evidenced by her freaking out and storming off after it's exposed. Like she's she's just as upset with the scenario as Lena is really, and again at the machinations of these powerful men. And I think it's really interesting because one of the songs that was cut from this movie was Debbie Reynolds singing as her character as Kathy singing. Uh, you are my lucky star earlier into the film. And because that's cut, it it, it, it changes the end of the movie when uh, Gene Kelly Lockwood sings the song to her because it, it's a musical. So at, in the musical format, much like opera, every character, pivotal characters are given a moment of interiority via their, their, their sung expression that kind of gives you a pivotal idea of where they are with the events of the film. To take it, to take Debbie Reynolds's version of You Are My Lucky Star earlier in the film out of it, not only robs her of that, but it, instead of it being the the kind of like arguably beautiful moment of Lockwood singing her own song to her, speaking her love language, it's just him singing another song that brings her back onto the stage. It ultimately, yeah, there's there's not, yeah, those, you laid that out really well as far as explaining why it's a little bit, not quite jarring, but you don't quite buy their by or their sort of embrace by the end because there isn't from her perspective that buildup of like, oh, you know, I'm really falling for this person. And it is quite a tonal, I don't know, shift. As Sam said, I wasn't buying it either by the end. And it's um, just in terms of like writing a musical is a is a structural failing because if you're gonna have that to be the big moment at the end, then it should be a refrain. So to cut it doesn't make sense on that front either. 
And there were, yeah, there's just a ton of stories about what was cut and what was reconsidered and redrafted. And it seemed like there were a lot of iterations of this movie uh, before what finally made it to the screen. But before, I guess, we talk about kind of the end of the movie, wanted to talk about some favorite numbers uh, or favorite scenes that people had or notable scenes uh, towards, the, I guess, the first half of the movie that people wanted to, to talk about. What are you saying is the end of the first half? Oh, God, I don't know. Give me any uh, notable uh, scene that stuck out in your mind. Something that I really loved, and I think that this is where I like actually guffawed out loud is um in i guess the the initial argument between kathy and don um at the at the grove i guess kathy just picks up a cake to like to throw it into don's face but actually actually hits lena instead shitty to hit lena hilarious i (laughs) i felt bad for laughing but i did Definitely, you're like, are they going to do a pie in the face moment? You're like, yeah, they did. But it actually kind of worked. It did, yeah. Also, I think that, and my my roommate told me this, the scene when Don and Kathy are having their, like, I don't know, love confession in the empty studio, Debbie Reynolds had been, like, chewing gum, and she, like, left it on the ladder. Gene Kelly's toupee got stuck to it. Mm -hmm. The fact that Gene Kelly is wearing a toupee, I had no idea. None. Is apparently quite upset. Yeah, I, everybody, anyone in the, involved in that would be upset. That's a great scene, though. I, I really, I mean, the song is really like pretty hackneyed and like just sort of pat, as a lot of these songs are, to be frank. I, I think the songwriting is very of the era and it's pretty unimpressive, but the way that it's matched with the physical movement and everything else is incredible. Especially this one, because like it's a very simple scene where he's, what is what is the song? It's um, da, 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 you were meant for me, which again is you know kind of emblematic of Lockwood. It's not about our shared feeling. It's about oh, you have existed to fulfill what I what I've been waiting for. Uh, again, this is the 1950s, whatever. But at any rate, the way it's shot is really great because it it's like a deconstruction of those kind of things. It's very meta. It's like shows you like the apparatuses and and tears down the artifice of musicals themselves in this number where it shows you like, oh, I'm going to turn on uh, these certain lights. Now I'm going to turn on this very romantic, uh, bucolic backdrop. I'm going to flip on this fan and now we're in a musical. That's really, really smart for this movie. Yeah, creating scenes and uh, yeah, it really has a wonderful spontaneity about it but that sets the stage for, for a beautiful love song and a, and a well-choreographed scene that starts to lay the foundation of their relationship. Still hashtag not buying it, but it definitely <laughs> lays, the, lays the foundation. Kelly had just, as I had said, come off of American in Paris, which was a huge, way bigger hit in this movie. And in fact, people thought that this was not quite a flop, but it definitely didn't get the big hit that um, American Paris did. And that features a lot more scenes of more sort of balletic dancing and wind and and also looks more like that final dance sequence that uh, Gene Kelly does with um, Sid, uh, oof, I, I cannot remember her name. Towards the end, they definitely shoehorn that in um, to make it feel more American in Paris-y, but. Sid Charisse. 
Yeah. Okay. Yes. Is it Sin or Sid? I think it's. I think it's Sid. Sin. Um, so yeah, that's a beautiful number for me. I think one of my favorite favorite numbers is the Make Them Laugh performance by Donald O'Connor. I mean, talk about stamina. So it was alluded to before, but part of the lore and legend of this movie is that O'Connor had to like go to the hospital after doing all the takes of this particular uh, sequence because it he apparently was smoking like four packs of cigarettes a day. Yeah. <laughs> and it was impacting his ability to get through this. But um, I just on YouTube, like just watching it, over and over on YouTube, I was obsessed with seeing, I mean, it's definitely not one take, but there are such long takes each in each sequence or segment of this, of this performance. And it just opens with him banging on a piano. And then suddenly he's up just throwing himself around. It's almost, uh, there's just such an frenetic energy to it. They're like, he's on another level and I'm almost concerned for him, but it takes sort of like tight dancing and then just throws it into a tailspin. And suddenly he's doing flips off a wall. He's dancing with the dummy. He's flipping over the couch, tearing through walls. And Gene Kelly is definitely known as the dancer in this movie, but I think O'Connor deserves all the cred for for the big, big, my favorite, in my opinion, my favorite number. That's one of the really cool things about that sequence too. It really kind of tells you a lot about Cosmo is that in a way that Lockwood was able to transition from silent film to, to, to talkies and everything. He's sort of understood and marketed as a showman. Whereas Cosmo was kind of his equal, but the difference is that he never kind of went out of the vaudeville slapstick backdrop that they started with. There's nothing smooth about, well, he, he does have very tight sort of traditional choreography and things like Good Good Morning and they do some other things, but there's still something a little bit jagged about him. I don't like, not it's a diff- like. It's a different kind of showman. Yeah. Which isn't what the kind of showman they were interested in. They were interested in Lockwood's, but, but Cosmo is. Uh, you know, an incredible performer as evidenced by the sequence. And like, yeah, I guess, you know, the, the backflips that he does off of the, the, the climbing backflips that he does twice off of two different surfaces was uh, something that he was known for doing as a kid. So they incorporated it, uh, which is actually part of why he was cast originally. And uh, yeah, evidently, yeah, he went to the, he was in, he was bedridden for three days after the shoot in the hospital and then ultimately there was some sort of problem with the aperture. So they had to film it again. <laughs> Which, like, I sort of believe, I also love the added layer to this production that there is a lot of sort of apocryphal information about this production. Like, and that might be true about the lost footage and things like that. But it's also one of those Hollywood things about like rolling out a movie and like telling these behind these scenes stories to get people really, really engaged and like wanting to see kind of what was almost a disaster and then this amazing film. And like like the whole thing about Gene Kelly doing his famous singing in the rain sequence all in one take. Like it wasn't, it took him like yeah, a bajillion yeah. <laughs> And so I, I love that. Huh? Oh yes. So he apparently mm. did have like a super high fever uh, while he was filming it. But I just love... Every time a movie comes out today, I just love reading all of the like, oh, somebody almost died. And then like (laughs) 
things went up in flames and this movie almost never happened. And it was like, I believe some of it. And then I also believe that there's something called a marketing machine that's going to spin up these tales to try to sell a movie. When supposedly the original film negatives also burned, whether or not that's true. And, and again, that's that's playing into the the kind of ethos of the film is like how much of this Hollywood studio produced uh, lore are you willing to accept as truth? Also speaking of truth, so the truth behind uh, Make Them Laugh is that it is a known, so not really a secret, it is a known thing that this song, which it was considered an original song, one of the only originally written songs for the production, was actually a blatant ripoff of Cole Porter's Be a Clown. And I listened to both of them. I was like, yeah, these are definitely the same songs. Um, but apparently Cole Porter like didn't sue because he had a decent relationship with um, the producer. But it again, it's interesting to see numbers just basically stolen from previous songwriters and then featured as an original number in a uh, production. But in addition to O'Connor's uh, amazing athleticism and like show, uh, yeah, just immense dancing talent, he also has some great face sequences too, where he multiple times through the, through the movie does contortions with his face and smushes his cheeks in really fun ways in time with the music. So you got his body moving everywhere. You have his face moving everywhere. It's a sight to behold. Joseph Gordon-Levitt in a SNL monologue redid Make Him Laugh. And it's very, very what? good. And like actually did it, like in one take. <laughs> and he did it. Yeah. Holy shit. I've never seen this. I got to check this out. Mm, wow. There's um, also, of course, um, there's Good Morning. Good Morning is fantastic. And just just really showcasing, I, I think in like, you know, obviously there were the limitations of the era, but it, it does feel meta the way that like the camera moves by and like you see just the fr slim frame of the door dividing the two rooms. Obviously, that's like a, a storied Hollywood technique, but it feels additionally removed via this meta layer, at least to me, just because it's saying so much about performance in Hollywood production. I don't know if that's actually their intention or not, but this sprawling set, it just keeps panning to the left and all of a sudden there's a new room and now there's a new room and now there's a new room. It just keeps going and it's incredible. And it's just a true testament to the, the miracle of the set design and the choreography behind this, that, that we follow this movement through a space that is of course, like impossibly rendered in its size, but feels like reasonable. And there's that. And also <laughs> I did think, though, right when they're having a the conversation, they've been up all night discussing how they're going to make this this movie work. And they have these nice sandwiches and, like, glasses of milk. And they take them all into the kitchen before they're all inspired. And they just dance through the rest of the house. And I'm just like, what about that sandwich? You don't let that sandwich go to waste. Although, in a great idea, when a fully formed dance starts to enter your body, that you've also found a way to dance in time with your friends as if this was a spontaneous idea. You got to leave the sandwich and just roll with it for the next like 10 minutes. God, I love dance. <laughs> Which also, oh my God, that whole sequence too, that all brought the, the imagined like spectacle of this movie as brought to life through, through Lockwood's imagination, which is just rendered for us, which is spectacular. And the way that it all unfolds with this giant, like, you know, neon lights 
of different casinos. And then it goes into this conveyor, this really like kinetic conveyor belt sequence. And, and ultimately arriving at like a Cirque du Soleil, like giant flowing, billowing like scarf <laughs> sort of thing that, that, that washes over him. It's a really crazy sequence, but um, yeah, it just really speaks to, I don't know. I, I've never seen anything quite like this movie as far as how far it goes to make spectacles of these these songs and these dance sequences. In creative ways, there are some terrible editing, like editing moments, or not, I mean, for the time, I'm sure it was impossible to edit anything, but there are definitely some like a little rough editing moments, but also some seamless editing moments, like in Good Morning, when they're clearly trying to cut a take, but they have the camera pass over the coat hanger, which acts as kind of like a like a edge to the frame so that they can do another take. And it looks, it, it like really looks great. And is a creative way to cut up the, cut up the scene, but not have like a change in angle. And so it's fun to see them playing with those different techniques. I think the most, yeah. And I, to that effect, I think the most interesting thing about this film is probably the camera movement. The way that this cam, the camera moves in this movie is, yeah, like I, I've seen some musicals, but unlike unlike anything, like, and especially because Gene Kelly was so specific in his co-direction was really insistent that like, look, we've seen people dance on film before and it's a static one shot. This can't be that. It needs to be more kinetic. It needs to be more dynamic and interactive with the choreography of this to illustrate not only intimacy, but scale to, to illustrate subtlety and grandeur it, it it's it's incredible uh, yeah I've, I've never seen anything quite like it and i think speaking of kind of technical aspects of filmmaking one of my favorite scenes is when they're trying the production team in the movie is trying to film the new talking version of the dueling cavalier and they're trying to figure out how to mic the characters in a way that will pick up their speaking voices, but be uh, kind of unobtrusive presences <laughs> in the shots. And they're trying to experiment with all of the mic placing. And honestly, when I was watching this scene, I was thinking of you, Dave, and all of your frustrations with all of us. <laughs> <laughs> when we're making when we're making noise or like the clicks of our keypads are fucking up all of our, or at least I'll speak for me because I probably produce the most uh, unwanted noise and all of that. But I just kept thinking of like you, Dave, when the director is like, just speak into the mic, please. And Lena swinging her head back and forth and like a pendulum and the mic is just picking up every fourth word. And I was like, this is so funny. And there's a specific scene when the director's like, Lena, we're missing every other word. You've got to talk into the mic. And then Lena goes, I can't make love to a bush. <laughs> so mm -hmm. she's like, try, he's trying to get her to like speak into this mic that's hidden inside of this foliage. It makes for some great laughs, but also really sort of depicts the technical challenges of making a movie, especially at that time, things that people might not necessarily think of miking people would have been a huge challenge not to try to pick up consistent sound and then to try to get it paired with visual film. Kind of jumping off of that, it was when the film premieres and she's like clacking the pearls. It's like, is that a thunderstorm? It's like, no, she's clacking her pearls. I, I, I thought of you too, Dave. And then when you like the film gets out of sync with the track, 
Um, I think a lot of that technical stuff was really enjoyable. And when the producer, when RF walks in, it's like, what's this cable doing here? That's not safe and takes it off. And then she like dramatically like gets flipped off of her chair. Well, you know what? This is actually pretty legit because the whole time I was thinking like, why aren't they using a goddamn boom mic? And I guess uh, just frantically Googling it now, it was invented in 1929, which is two years after when this film takes place. So Before the boom mic, there was the bush mic. <laughs> like, they did not figure it out. <laughs> I can't make love to a bush. So good. Yeah, so we've got lots of great numbers. Good morning. Make them laugh. An- another great choreographed piece i love moses supposes that's like an original song even though it's not a song (laughs) it's a chant (laughs) at best but there is some really wonderful dancing uh with gene kelly and donald donald o'connor can't say his name donald o'connor so great choreography there there's definitely a moment though where this is like this is the struggle i have with musicals where it's like at what point does a character say en- enough with the dancing? Because this is a guy that's supposed to be a dialectician teaching them how to sing or teaching them how to sing and how to talk. And all of a sudden they just tear ass dancing all over the place for like five minutes. And this guy's just like, all right, well, it's the studio's money. I'll wait. Yeah. They don't treat the the teacher, yeah. They, they, all, they don't treat the teacher very well. They sort of all, almost bring him into the dance, but then they just pile a bunch of shit on top they of him. They throw garbage like, on him. They, they literally throw garbage at him. Oh, yeah. No respect for educators. So, yeah, that's really unfortunate. But it makes for, for a nice final big moment. I th- Okay, so my favorite all time. I know I keep saying, oh, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. There's some definitely, there's some dud numbers. But this, in fact, Broadway Melody uh, is not my fave. But uh, my favorite number, and this may surprise you because as far as a musical number, there's not much there, is Beautiful Girl. <laughs> because you have, and this, this number is definitely a pure satire because apparently it was written to make fun of this guy, Busby Berkeley, who is a choreography or choreographer known for these kaleidoscope le- landscape of like female legs. And like, as I'm saying it, you might be like, what the fuck, Christine? But if you saw it, you'd be like, oh, I know this from a movie or like, I know this from pop culture or whatever, just like legs everywhere, synchronized dancing. So the number beautiful girls is making fun of this guy, Busby Berkeley. And it's just a hit. It's just this presenter surrounded by like beautifully dressed women. One of them is Kathy Seldon. And that's how a producer's like, Ooh, who's that? She looks cool. So that's kind of how she's brought into the production because they see her in this number. But then it turns into this just fashion show with some of the best lines, I think, written of all time. You've got lines like, and it presents a woman wearing a fancy outfit for lounging in her boudoir this simple plain pajama and the pajama is nuts. It's like a fur collar with high heels and everything. And then there's a tennis outfit and the voiceover says, anyone for tennis? Well, this will make them cringe. (laughs) And then one of my favorites is 
you will never dream the things you could hide in these sleeves. And this woman is holding up this long flowing sleeve. And I just, I want to watch this sequence over and over and just try on outfits and just have, you'll never dream what she could hide in these sleeves. So it's not a dance number. It's not a musical. Well, it's somewhat of a musical number, but it's got some of the best written lines played for comedic effect, I think, ever. That was the big surprise for me. I, I was I was shocked how incisively funny this was for a meta commentary in the 1950s. It's, it's almost like postmodern. Yeah, uh, definitely um, a standout number. Um, but uh, yeah, so we've been t- talking about this, this theme of how the story kind of engages with Hollywood trickery and the, the, the blurring of truth and reality as really played up with Kathy doing all the lines for Lena once it, it's determined that audiences will just make fun of her voice. Um, which is interesting because in the scene when she is, when we ha- we see Kathy dubbing lines for Lena, in fact, the real production took out Debbie Reynolds' voice and replaced it with Gene Hagen, who plays Lena Lamont, because they thought that Debbie Reynolds' Midwestern accent wasn't right for the part. And so you've got these layers of trickery and swapping out and replacing and it just it the layers just keep going and so it kind of raises this question does the film still by today's standards work as a Hollywood satire or does it at times fall into the same traps that it's supposed to be making fun of especially also and I think this is a really important point thinking of of not only in the case of Lena and uh, and Kathy and sort of authentic, vo- like what is authentic voice uh, as it's portrayed in the movie, but also the idea that a lot of Gene Kelly's choreography is basically influenced by African-American performance performers that came before him. You've got Bill Bojangles Robinson, the Nicholas Brothers, who actually Gene Kelly performed with doing a number be a clown, which was the song that was ripped off or ripped to do make them laugh. So it's all connected. And so you have this added layer of Hollywood appropriation and like complications with what is perceived as, you know, authentic reality and not. And so I think that is also an added layer and problem with the movie um, that is, is definitely an important one to acknowledge and uh, yeah, I mean, you've got like white performers like Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, I mean, th- and throughout all of Hollywood history, ripping off and appropriating uh, black performance and uh, art. And so it just uh, all of those complexities and layers as we assess this movie that's deemed a classic, but I think with a lot of needed uh, like acknowledgements of fucking Hollywood and all of their problems of, of deceit and stealing from others. Yeah, Christine, I, I really think that 
you know, you bring up a good point. It's both. I think that it does suffer from all of these issues, but it still remains a very good satire of a system that we still see in play today. I mean, the whole relationship between Don and Lena is, you know, PR couples. I'm deep on uh, PR couple TikTok. And let me tell you what, I am shook with the people who I thought, I thought were real cup. I mean, there were some where I was like, man, but there are some people I'm like, damn, I thought you loved each other. And it turns out like, no, not really. It's just to make money. It's for another conversation, but I need all of your dirt on the Hollywood couple. <laughs> I'll save it. <laughs> That's one of the interesting things about considering this a classic is that I think it is a classic. It's, it's a pretty spectacular film for some of its failings, which I think we've touched on, but interestingly layered because yeah, it, it, it does present itself as a, not necessarily a critique, but a satire of the 1920s when set in the 1950s, which we can now interpret in a critical lens, not only as a reflection of the 1920s, but as the 1950s themselves. Um, and as I think we've just suggested, it, a lot of the issues um, and dynamics that this film explores both as a portrait of the 1920s as a product of the 1950s and as something to look back on today are still issues that exist within the Hollywood system. So I think there's a lot to unpack here that remains shockingly relevant. And part of that makes it a classic, whether intentional or not, uh, as far as the meta commentary. It was interesting watching this. Um, not so in December, a remake of West Side Story came out by Spielberg, which apparently is great. Like I'm sure I'll see it one day. Um, and West Side Story is another very iconic movie musical, uh, 1962. And it was just funny because Natalie Wood was duped, tricked into being dubbed over. I mean, that's an iconic role for her. And so they, she was under the impression that all of her singing would be in the film when she got dubbed over. And so this, that film came out uh, like 10 years after Singing in the Rain. And so it's just funny just how similar, like I was just reading about this the other week. Um, and then watching this, it's like, oh, these things even after Singing in the Rain and still today are are prevalent. And who gets recognition, which is what this movie kind of, I think, discusses. But I don't know. You know, Christine, you brought up many wonderful points. So I think recognition is a takeaway that I came from, I think, is like a word that I was thinking about while watching this movie. Hollywood has a way of distorting all truth. <laughs> it is a fiction machine. Yes. Mm. Now, Sam, you got me thinking about those Hollywood power couples that are all lies. I want to know. Um, wow, guys, we covered a lot of ground. Any last thoughts about, oh, I have a last fact. Uh, apparently, the Dueling Cavalier was created as a spoof of MGM's real attempt, or MGM's real silent film flop called Don Juan, starring John Barrymore. And apparently... <laughs> I don't know why this is a fact until I actually watched a snippet of it. Apparently it features 191 kisses. And I was like, what kind of stat is that? Uh, and it's because John Barrymore keeps kissing the hand and like the arm. It's just a lot of like creepy hand arm kissing, which I guess is whatever, Don Juan. Uh, but then... MGM in real life, their first attempt at a talking picture was the 1929, the Broadway melody, which then inspired Singing in the Rain's final sequence, Broadway melody in real life. So lots of, lots of backstories and layers. Any other final thoughts about Singing in the Rain? 
Do you think? Oh, we haven't even, well, oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, two things. Um, one, my other roommate told me that the rain and literally singing in the rain is like diluted milk um, and water. That, that and the toupee, I haven't been able to think about much else. Um, so, so there's that. And then also, you know, something that made this um, a bit more of enjoyable watch for me is, is the rain rail. <laughs> That's funny, Connor. Um, oh I, heard, I heard that too. I guess for, I think that was uh, the initial uh, apophical reporting, but it was actually mostly backlit. But I did, I did find that it was supposedly milk, but I, I don't know whether or not that's accurate. But if it is, that's really great to have pouring on a man with 103 degree fever. Yeah, regardless, oh the idea that it could be anything other than water is vile. <laughs> um, but something that made this a little bit more enjoyable too is knowing that Chris Evans is going to play Gene Kelly in a biopic soon, um, like a biopic-esque. So I, I'm really excited. Okay, I saw that and I was like, is this for real? And yeah. has Sam seen this? <laughs> yeah, and it was Chris's idea too. Oh, it just makes me emotional. Uh, really? We'll see. Gene Kelly was reportedly something of an asshole. But and, I mean, that's what he's going to do. It doesn't oh, okay, cool, cool, good. It doesn't seem to me that he's going to play, like the biopic is about Gene Kelly. It sounds like it's going to be about like a young actor who comes into Gene Kelly's orbit. And that sounds he, interesting. Okay, like, cool. He learns from him, whatever, whatever, but you really just see that he's an asshole. Hmm. My um, one line that I really just wanted to mention that made me laugh out loud was when Donald O'Connor, when they were like, they keep looking for Debbie Reynolds throughout. Like, it's a, it's a thing. It's like, oh, she stuck with me. Like, I got to find her. And then when they find her, he goes, we searched every cake in Hollywood because she burst out of the cake. And, <laughs> and that line, I just thought that that line was just really he has he has a lot of good lines. But that one, I don't know, just, <laughs> just made me laugh a lot. There's the other one, yeah, too, where uh, in an earlier meeting, he offers RF, I think, who's the head of the studio, a cigar. And then later on, when RF gives him some disappointing news, it's like, I gave you a cigar or you owe me one cigar or something like that. Yeah. Got a lot of good one-liners. Yeah, it's a great movie. I would say check it out. Um, one one last little note is that it, I, I, as someone who is very suspicious of the conceit, and framing device of uh, of musicals. I do kind of want to walk around my day-to-day life now, every once in a while, turning to like a total stranger in like a moment of silence, just being like, gotta dance. And like, if they get it, they'll dance. And then I'm in a musical, but otherwise maybe not. The energy, yeah. When Kelly just keeps turning and looking at different angles and just yelling, gotta dance. You're like, what? what level are you on right now? So Dave, I think that would be an amazing way to really scare someone or actually bring them into the fold, into the musical fold. Just make it a musical, spin it into being. Yeah. Exactly. Just as you're going to tell people randomly got to dance, I'm going to walk up to people and say, for lounging in her boudoir, (laughs) this simple plain pajama. And I want to see what people say in response. Um, Dave, but what if you do the gotta dance and and they're just the the agents who like slam the door? You can't be sure. Oh crap. And you that's move on true. to the next door. No, this is life, guys. You you knock on that door, you yell in someone's face, gotta dance. If they slam that door in your face, you just move on to the next door. That I wonder is... I haven't gotten second interviews. This is starting to make a lot of sense. <laughs> 
just walk in with your resume? God damn. Sir, this is a bank. Oh, well, on that, on that note, uh, we did it. And uh, send us an email. Write us on all the socials. You know where they are. You know where to find them. Check out Movie John, all the great podcasts. We're signing out. Have a great whatever.